This podcast is recorded and produced on Gadigal land as well as other parts of Australia. In the spirit of reconciliation, Women's Agenda acknowledges the traditional custodians of country nationwide and their connections to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and recognise that sovereignty was never ceded, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. You're listening to Fertility Unfiltered, a Women's Agenda special podcast series supported by Jenea Fertility. Through this series, we aim to break down common misconceptions, shatter stigmas and provide a platform for those whose voices have been silenced. We'll challenge society's limited understanding of fertility, amplifying stories that celebrate the beauty of diverse paths to parenthood. I'm your host, Tala Lambert. So you're ready to have a baby. That's exciting. But what happens now? I'm Tyler Lambert, Editor-in-Chief at Women's Agenda, and I've spent the past few months speaking to some of Australia's leading specialists on reproductive health to help you on that journey to starting a family. Around Australia, people are having children later and later in life. Back in 1981, just 15% of first-time mums were aged 30 or over. By 2020, that rose to 53%. That's half of all mothers having their first child at 30 or over. From egg freezing to IVF, advancements in healthcare are transforming how we start families. But with all these new options, where do you start? Over this 10-part series, I'm going to explore the ins and outs of getting pregnant today, from the simple lifestyle choices that could be holding you back, to some of the modern technologies that can boost your chances. Let's start with where you are. What birthday are you celebrating this year? That number shouldn't discourage you, but it's worth factoring in when planning for pregnancy. Here's Dr. Rashi Kalra, a fertility specialist for Jenea, explaining why. Age affects fertility both in males and females. You know, we know that. So we'll talk about women first. But we know that there is a gradual decline in the quality and quantity of a woman's eggs, which starts as early as probably the age of 32. Um, And then a more rapid decline in her egg quality and egg number after 37. Um, We know that unfortunately for a woman in her 40s, her chance of getting pregnant every month can be as low as 5% because a high percentage of her eggs will have chromosomal or genetic errors and also the egg number has declined significantly by that point. The decline in egg quality and egg number means that it can take longer for women to get pregnant as they get into their late 30s, early 40s, but also the rates of miscarriage you know, can increase. It's not just the age of women that counts when planning for a baby. Men also face a decline in fertility as they get older. In terms of males, we actually start to see subtle declines in sperm counts from 40 onwards as well. Um, and sperm is actually very sensitive to the overall health of a, of a man. You know, we say usually sperm is a good barometer for a man's health. So we know that things like obesity, uh, chronic health conditions, smoking, alcohol intake can all have much more of an impact on sperm quality in a male in his 40s than maybe it did when he was 20. Generally, it's the quality and quantity for women and for men, it's the quality of sperm can decline after 40. We know that age is the most significant predictor of how likely a woman is to get pregnant naturally and delaying her family may increase the likelihood that she may need fertility assistance. If couples or if a woman is truly in a position where she cannot start a family, then at that point, one option is for her to have her AMH level tested. And if she is in her um, early 30s, she she may want to consider freezing her eggs. You know, we know that the quality of a woman's eggs peaks between the age of 25 and 34. And those are the years when women are most likely to conceive naturally without needing any further assistance. 
We're going to explore egg freezing in episode four, but I first want to know what an AHM test is. What exactly is AHM and what can it tell you about your chances of getting pregnant? AMH or anti-malarian hormone is a hormone produced by the immature eggs in a woman's ovary. So it's a very good marker of how many immature eggs are in a woman's ovary. And we say that an AMH is a test of a woman's ovarian reserve or basically egg pool. So women are all born with a finite number of eggs and we unfortunately lose eggs as we get older. And the amount of AMH in your blood correlates with how many eggs are in your ovaries. Now, clinically or you know, in the fertility setting, AMH peaks sometime in the mid-20s. Um, and then slowly decreases with time. And unfortunately, in most women in their 40s, AMH levels are very low or can be undetectable. So higher levels of anti-malarian hormone in your body means more eggs. But do more eggs mean you can get pregnant? A lot of women seem to be surprised when I tell them that it's not a fertility test. It's just a test of how many eggs are in your ovaries. It's not a test of how likely you are to get pregnant naturally. It predicts how many eggs a woman might get if she went through a cycle of IVF. Um, And it helps someone like myself, the fertility doctor, to decide what dosage of medication to give a woman going through any fertility treatment. It's not a measure of a woman's egg quality, and it's not a measure of how likely a woman is to get pregnant naturally. So um, we know women with a low AMH can actually get pregnant Uh, Naturally, we know women with a high AMH can have fertility issues. Uh, It's really more relevant as a guide for women as to how many eggs are in their egg pool, uh, egg number, not quality, and how many eggs they might get if they went through a round of IVF or egg freezing. Dr. Kalra says the anti-malarian hormone, or AMH test, can be ordered for you by a health practitioner like your GP or fertility specialist. But it's worth also checking in with them about a few other things, So you can create a holistic plan together moving forward. I think more and more women are becoming aware of the fact that the AMH test exists and is a very accurate marker of ovarian reserve. I think more and more women are approaching their GPs and fertility doctors and asking them to do this blood test. It can be done any time in her menstrual cycle, so it's quite convenient to do. It's not fully covered by Medicare, so there is an out-of-pocket on average cost of about $80 for a woman to do an AMH blood test. I think ideally a woman should have pre- and post-test counselling with a health practitioner to discuss what the results would mean individually for her. I think before a woman has an AMH test, it's important for her to discuss either with her GP or her fertility practitioner Uh, where she's at in terms of uh, starting a family, uh, what her family aspirations are. Uh, It's important to, you know, consider other things that might affect fertility, you know, uh, background history of endometriosis, pelvic fibroids, ovarian cysts, etc. As you get ready to have a baby, remember that the AMH test only provides part of all the information you need. If you're going into this with a male partner, it's worth looking at sperm tests and what these results mean for treatment going forward. To test uh, his semen, a male has to essentially ejaculate, produce a semen sample in a laboratory-provided container, a specimen container. We advise an abstinence period of three to seven days prior to producing the sample. So, you know, we basically say don't have sex for three to seven days before your sperm test. 
Then the andrologists or the scientists in the laboratory um, will assess the semen samples. So they assess numerous parameters, but the most important are the concentration of sperm. And this is usually in millions. It takes a lot of sperm to make a baby. They test the percentage of sperm that are moving or what we call the motility of the sperm. And then they test what percentage of sperm have a normal shape or what's formally called morphology of the sperm. The the sample then gives us an idea as to how fertile that sample is or whether the semen test is, you know, if there are abnormalities, whether that is a contributor to why the couple haven't conceived naturally. The results of the semen analysis will then determine what type of fertility treatment, you know, a fertility doctor will advise. We never make significant management decisions based off one semen analysis because we know that even in healthy males, sometimes they can have an abnormal test and we will always repeat it in six weeks if there are abnormalities to confirm that what we're seeing is not just a one-off. A sperm test can cost about $150 and Medicare rebates are available. Male infertility affects almost half of all couples trying to conceive. To boost your chances of getting pregnant as a couple, there are a few lifestyle changes you can make to help. Let's start with baby steps. Lifestyle changes can actually make a huge difference to a couple's fertility and that's important to know. A lot of people don't realise that. So one of the most important things is for couples to maintain or achieve a healthy weight or body mass index as much as possible before they start trying to conceive. So a body mass index should ideally be between 19 and 25, and you can actually find calculators online that will work out your body mass index for you. So maintaining a healthy weight is really important. It's very important to quit smoking or vaping. And if you can't quit, to at least try to cut back as much as possible because we know that smoking is is uh, detrimental to the quality of a woman's eggs and a male's sperm, you know. Um, it's important to minimise alcohol intake to one standard drink a day for women, no more than five days a week, and two standard drinks a day for a man, no more than five days a week, and to not save up all the drinks for one day a week. So we know that binge <laughs> yeah. drinking is not good for uh, egg and sperm quality. So no binge drinking, drop the vaping, and get to a healthy weight. Dr. Kaura says these changes, along with some regular exercise, will have a direct impact on your egg and sperm quality. Uh, it's important for, um, for people to exercise regularly, so 30 minutes of exercise four or five times a week. And particularly for women, it's important to make sure things like their vitamin D, iron levels are optimised before they get pregnant. And then there's also some evidence that a Mediterranean diet is good for fertility. And basically what that means is a diet rich in antioxidants, which are obtained through fruit and vegetables. So, you know, a healthy diet in moderation is also good for for natural fertility. Yeah, not too many Tim Tams. No. (laughs) The only one here or there is okay, but not too many. (laughs) So you've cut back the Tim Tams and making healthy lifestyle changes and you want to try things naturally. It's time to get in the bedroom. But how do you get bang for buck? Before you dim those lights, let's take a look at your menstrual cycle. Every patient I see, every every woman has an app that tracks her menstrual cycle. So most people have apps now. Apps are generally computer-generated algorithms. So they don't necessarily predict ovulation when there's individual variation between people, you know. Actually, monitoring cervical mucus is a really good way to assess when you're ovulating. So... Uh, Some women will notice changes in their cervical mucus, you know, two weeks after their period, so mid-cycle. They'll notice that their mucus is more slippery. That's actually a really good sign that your body's about to ovulate. 
Some women might get ovulation pain. They might feel a bit of pain on one side of their pelvis, but not everyone is aware when they're ovulating. So the more accurate ways to test that are either through a urine testing kit that you can buy from the pharmacy, like an ovulation kit. So it measures the amount of LH or luteinizing hormone in your blood. And this hormone normally peaks the day before you ovulate. So you can buy an LH testing kit from your pharmacy. Or the other way is to uh, track ovulation with blood tests to actually monitor for this LH hormone surge. And uh, at our clinic, we offer that to our patients. Our nurses will track their cycles and tell them when exactly they're ovulating. So there's various ways, um, but I, I usually find the urine test is a, is a good first option for couples who want a bit of clarity around when to try, you know. It's helpful for couples to be able to narrow down the window of ovulation sometimes as well, otherwise it can get a bit stressful to have to try every day, uh, every second of the month. <laughs> it does take the fun out of it, doesn't it? Yes, it can take the fun out of it. <laughs> as you embark on this journey, there will be a lot to take in as you learn new things about your body what it can and can't do, and how it evolves. The impact of this won't just be physical with finances, relationships, your mental well-being, and other factors at play. That's why it's really important to choose healthcare practitioners wisely. Here's a checklist from Dr. Kaura to help. We know it can be quite daunting for patients to accept that they might need fertility assistance and then choosing a clinic. Often there's numerous options. Probably the most important um, first step would be to uh, choose your fertility specialist carefully. So understand their qualifications, their experience. Are they CREI board certified, which means that they are a fertility subspecialist? Or do they have a master's in reproductive medicine? Have they had any additional postgraduate training in the area of fertility? It's also important for patients to check what level of involvement their doctor is going to have in managing their IVF cycle. Will they review all their results? Will they do all their procedures? You know, it's important to consider all that. It's also important for patients to try and understand to what level their fertility specialist will be involved in their uh, treatment cycle. So, you know, will they oversee all the results? Will they be present for all their procedures? Uh, these things are important to ask. Then it's very important to try and understand the success rates of the clinic that you've chosen. So these can be accessed uh, online. Most clinics will publish their pregnancy rates. And to understand what technology the clinic can offer. So do they offer advanced treatments like genetic testing, what we call PGS or PGD, which is pre-implantation genetic diagnosis? Then it's important to think about the accessibility of the clinic. You know, I mean, a lot of women going through IVF treatments are working. They have to attend appointments simultaneously. Can you access the clinic easily? And how available are the staff in the clinic to you? You know, the nurses, counsellors, uh, admin staff, and of course, your medical specialist. I think patients should also uh, seek advice from trusted sources like their GP. Friends and family can be a good source of recommendations. And I think finally, but not unimportantly, is that patients must um, seek out information about the cost of fertility treatment at the clinic and fully understand that before they commit to treatment, you know, including reading the fine print. Read the fine print. In this age of apps and social media, many of us are used to signing agreements without looking at the fine print. To avoid unexpected stress and costs later, Dr. Kaura's advice is worth noting. 
every clinic has their own processes and it's hard for patients to fully understand the cost. So, you know, we have patient relationship coordinators, we call them, who essentially will um, send patients a detailed quote before their appointments and even give them a phone call to completely explain costs before they start any fertility treatment. But it, yes, patients don't sometimes understand costs, but um, it's hard. You know, we expect that and we make sure we have systems in place to prevent miscommunication. As more and more people have babies later in life, there really needs to be better awareness about the realities of conception and reproductive health so we can all make informed choices through this complex and exciting journey. Times are changing. Women are pursuing higher levels of education. They're pursuing higher career opportunities. And therefore, it can't be helped that we are delaying, you know, the age of childbearing. I think women should be educated early on in their reproductive years about the impacts of age on fertility. And they should be educated about what options they have to safeguard their future reproductive years if they are unable to start a family in their peak fertile window, uh, which is you know, between 25 and 34. But I think the education also should lie beyond women. It should lie with men. It should lie with employers. It should lie with policymakers. You know, I think there's a lot that could be done to make work workplaces more family friendly so that women don't feel compelled to delay having a family to get a work promotion. Um, and maybe even there should be some kind of Medicare rebates for young women who are proactive and wanting to freeze their eggs so that they don't, you know, need to have multiple cycles of fertility treatment in their late 30s, early 40s. So I think that is a message that really needs to get out there, that we need to educate probably society quite broadly on female fertility because it doesn't just affect women, it affects everybody in society. Over the next few episodes, we're going to take a closer look at egg freezing, how to plan a family while building a career, the process of IVF, and your options if you want to have a baby solo or are a same-sex couple. Before we do that, there's something we need to talk about. Infertility affects both men and women, and there are many reasons why. So in the next two episodes, I'll be speaking to two leading fertility doctors who specialise in these areas. Together, we're going to find out what causes infertility and if there's anything you can do to prevent it. That's it for today's episode, and a huge thank you to Dr. Rashi Kalra at Janea. You can stay up to date with each episode in this series by subscribing to the Women's Agenda podcast, which you'll find on Spotify and our website. I'm Tyler Lambert. I'll see you next time. Thank you.